Good evening. I want to tell you a story. Our little church plant, when we were just three years into our project in Arkadelphia, we decided it was time for us to have an evangelistic series, a campaign. But we, you know, we're not a church yet, and we don't have money. So we can't afford to bring in one of those fancy evangelists. We just had to use one of ourselves to do the preaching. And we couldn't afford to do a massive mailing, but we did a mailing and invited people. And from the people that came in through our mailing, at the end of our series, guess how many were ready for baptism? It was zero. It was zero. And this was our first series, so we were batting 100% zero for our series at this point. There was a lady, Pat McGee, who unlocked the door for the public hall each night. And the first few nights, she unlocked it, and then she went and sat in a chair outside and waited for it to be done, and then came and locked it back up. But she decided to be more interested and comfortable to come inside, and Pat McGee was the only person ready for baptism at the end of our first series. You know, within three months of her baptism, Pat McGee was giving Bible studies to everyone on her street. A month later, she was in charge of our Discover Bible School. She was a lady of influence in the community, and God made that first series productive. In preparation for that series, we trained a few of our students, students who were working with my wife and I and with one of the other teachers at Washita. we trained them how to make a series as productive as possible. And one of those things you do is you make friends with a visitor. You know, the visitor comes, you sit down beside him, and you talk to him before the meeting, you talk to him after the meeting, and then you tell him you can't wait to see him again tomorrow. So he'll come back tomorrow. One of the young men we were training was named Luke Privet, or Luke Risley, and it's uh, quite a story. He didn't know what his real name was until he was almost 18. But um, Luke was not socially gifted. I don't know how you evaluate people when you first meet them, but I evaluate them on the basis, if I don't really try not to, I evaluate you on the basis of your social giftedness. Uh, Kind of from totally not skilled to very skilled. Luke was on the very low end of social skills. He didn't know when he was being uh, clingy. When he, was, when he, he didn't know when he was speaking, when he'd gone on too long on a topic and everyone wanted him to just be quiet, kind of like I went on too long last night. He didn't know when he had gone on too long and he laughed at things that no one else thought were funny and he just really did not have those, what you'd call social gifts. But he was highly sincere. And Luke came to our meeting and he sat down beside Bill Hollis. And he talked to Bill Hollis and made friends with Bill Hollis. And when Bill's wife stopped attending the meetings because of what she'd found about Adventist on the internet, Bill continued attending because he had made friends with Luke Privet. You know, you don't have to be a highly gifted person to be used in a highly effective way. You don't. God can use your efforts, your sincerity, what you have. And uh, at the end of the, at the meetings, Luke was still friends with Bill. Bill wasn't ready for baptism, but Bill continued to attend our Adventist church because of his friendship with Luke and because he was learning things with us. 
And uh, it was about, I suppose, five or six months later that Bill decided for baptism in December. That December, GYC was in Minnesota. Any of you ever attended GYC? Some of you here? And that was the coldest GYC. And um, on the way back from that December GYC, Luke was headed home with some friends, and they had an accident, and uh, Luke was killed in that car accident on the way home. Just three weeks before Bill Hollis was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I don't think that Luke will be disappointed in the resurrection uh, to find out the whole story of what God has, has done with Luke's life. God has made Luke's life useful long after his death. And if there's anything I can wish for you, it's what Balaam wished for himself. Do you know what Balaam wished for himself? He said, oh, that I might die the death of the righteous, that my last end might be like his. Let me tell you another story that happened a lot longer ago. Once upon a time in a land far away, there was a man named Roger Williams. You've read about him in your Great Controversy, right? And if you don't remember him, you should read the Great Controversy again. Uh, Roger Williams lived at a time when there was a lot of fanaticism in that part of New England where he was. The fanaticism was not just little spotches of weirdness. It was a very organized system. It was the Quaker religion. Do you have Quakers here in northern Idaho? We have a lot of them in Alaska because they were some of the first missionaries to the Eskimos in Alaska. So there are probably more Quakers in Alaska than anywhere else I've ever been in my life. Maybe some New England state has them. Quakerism is very close to spiritualism. The, clo- the closest branch of religion to Quakerism philosophically would probably be Buddhism. But, uh, but Buddhism and Quakerism didn't even know about each other um, when they were existing in other parts of the world. And Quakerism was heavy in New England. It was Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, Connecticut. And uh, do you know how the Puritans opposed Quakerism? They opposed it with a strong-handed measure. They uh, first fined them, then they began to beat them. And if you, eventually, if you were a Quaker, you would be stripped from the waist up and tied your hands behind a cart, and you'd be led through the middle part of the city. They would beat you all the way through the city on your back, and then they'd lead you to the outside of the city limits and let you go, and that was your punishment as a Quaker. Eventually, they decided that being a Quaker, a second offense would be a capital crime. Do you know how well that worked in subduing Quakerism? Not at all. Quakerism was never subdued by high-handed measures. The fact is that if you are being persecuted, the devil tells you that you must be in the right since your spirit is so much better than that of those who are opposing you. And the Quakers, even though they were in the wrong, I mean, their religion was worse than worthless, but they felt like they must be in the right since they were suffering persecution. Do you see how persecution backfires? I just want you to understand something about, when I say persecution, I mean that type, the use of the civil government to oppose something. 
Roger Williams was also persecuted, and he ended up moving to a little settlement, helped found it really into a, a formal state, Rhode Island. And unlike any other state around Rhode Island, Rhode Island had no laws against Quakerism. That made Connecticut angry. That made Massachusetts angry. Because when they would banish Quakers, the Quakers would go to Rhode Island, kind of regroup their forces, get courage up, and they'd come right back into Connecticut or Massachusetts to make havoc again. So they put pressure on Roger Williams to make anti-Quaker laws. And I just want to let you know what, what Roger Williams had to say about that, because I think it will be relevant to you and your life here in the vicinity of the northern woods. Roger Williams said, there's a reason why they come back to you in Connecticut and Massachusetts. There you oppose them with force of arms. Here we oppose them with clear reasoning from the scriptures. And when we oppose them with clear reasoning from the scriptures, with no force whatsoever, they can't stand it. They lose their power with the people and they go where the field is more productive. That's still true, brothers and sisters. To oppose fanatical teaching with clear Bible instruction always works better than to oppose it with mean-spirited activity. Just because of the nature that fanaticism is an excitement, and when it's met with calm reasoning, it just loses a lot of its power. Now, you shouldn't believe anything I've told you so far, because I haven't even showed you one verse from the Bible. I've just told you some things from stories, and uh, do you know that you can illustrate error as well as you can illustrate truth? If you buy into something just because it's well illustrated, you are easy prey. Uh, error is, I think I already said this like 40 seconds ago, but I'm saying it again. Error is capable of being illustrated, and illustrations are not a source of truth. What you do, if my mother took a college course at, at a college I won't name. And um, this is when she was an adult. This is when I was an adult. And uh, the teacher of that course was teaching a course about parables, and he uh, gave them a parable and then asked everyone in the class to decide what the teaching of the parable was or what lesson could be drawn from the parable. My mom really enjoyed that assignment. It just matched her creativity. She enjoyed extracting lessons from the parable. And she could not understand why I was so displeased when I heard about the assignment. I'm telling you, it's because it confuses the issue of the source of truth. When you extract a lesson from a parable, the parable doesn't teach you anything. What's happening is you're taking what you already think and you're searching for an illustration of your ideas in the story or the parable. The parable becomes a means not of changing your idea for the better, it becomes a means of reinforcing what you already think. You are the standard of right and wrong if you're the one who is the source of the idea. Is there at least 10 people in here that it makes sense to you what I just said? Okay, so I'm pleased with that. So watch that when you're learning things. There are many people who teach largely by illustration. Illustration is a great way to teach. But illustrations are great when they're used as a memory device, 
they're horrible when they're used as a source of information. And when you listen, you should discern, is this illustration, is it the source of the idea? If it is, how do I know the idea is true? You can't learn whether an idea is true from the illustration. Okay, I've just said enough, and so it's time for a Bible study. Our teaching, our theme for this weekend is a faith that endures, and I want to teach you tonight about faith. I think there's no way you can have a faith that endures unless you have faith, and I'd like you to know, first of all, what faith is. Let's start with some things that are in your mind. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's in Matthew 4.4, and if you have a good version of the Bible, it's also in Luke 4.4. And if you have a bad version of the Bible, only half of it is in Luke 4.4. And that's a fairly easy way for you to evaluate versions of the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then there's another verse you know. You can find this in Romans 1.16. You can find it in Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. Now follow this logic. Either there are two ways to live. A, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and B, by faith. Or these ideas are synonymous. Does anyone follow that, that idea? And the answer is B. If you want to know what faith is, faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why when you read Hebrews 11, and it illustrates faith, for Noah, faith is building an ark. Because God said to build an ark. When God says something, faith looks like obedience. When God gives a warning, faith looks like someone taking warning. When God gives encouragement, then faith looks like uh, joy. When you're thinking about the truth of the gospel, faith leads to humility and to repentance. I mean, when you're thinking about Jesus on the cross, that humbles you. That makes you consider really, the Bible indicates that this is what leads you to turn away from your sin, is the mercy of God. Have you read that in Romans 2.4? So that is our first step. What is faith? Faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not faith if you live by some words and ignore others. It's faith when you live by every word. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 is the story of the centurion. The centurion is uh, one of only two people that Jesus encountered to whom he said that you have great faith. And we want to just observe a few things about him. Matthew chapter 8, and we're looking at verse 8. Well, let's start in uh, verse 5. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Beseeching. I want you to highlight that word in your mind or in your notes or your thinking. The Bible says the effectual, what's the next word? Fervent. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Here is a problem. It's that for very many of us, the fervent gets left out of the prayer. That is, we believe the promises of God. 
We talk about the promises. We pray as if the promises are true. But we don't pray with fervency. And I don't know if you can follow this idea, but fervency is part of humility. That is, if you're on my level, I'll talk to you as if you're on my level. But if you are far above me, I will come to you in a beseeching manner. I can't come to you just as if you're on my level, if you're high above me. And when we come to God beseeching him, that beseeching, you see when the centurion beseeches Jesus, the centurion is putting himself in a humble position, that he's putting himself down. I'm trying to tell you it's the same way in our prayers. It's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. I don't feel fervency very often when I pray, but I make the sound of fervency, I make the words of fervency, I pray out loud with as much fervency as I can put into my voice. I'm so glad that salvation does not depend on feelings, that I can put as much fervency as I can in, and that's the fervency that God accepts from me. We can, you understand this idea. Verse eight, Jesus has just said he would come and heal the paralytic. So you do know, I I didn't read it to you, but is the centurion asking something for himself or something for someone else? You know, he's asking for someone else. This is one of the characteristics of his faith. That is, he's not praying for something for him, but for another. Jesus was like that, not for himself, but for others. He lived and worked and prayed. It's amazing that Jesus said, I will come and heal. Verse eight, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. So what do we know about this man so far? One is that he's earnest in his petition. Two is that he's asking for someone else. And the third point I want you to observe is he doesn't feel worthy. Do you see that there? He doesn't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I've built a synagogue for you please heal, Never, nothing like that. He doesn't feel that he deserves something. How can you come to Jesus if you don't feel like you deserve something? It must be you have confidence in his compassion. It must be you've heard something about how kind he is. If he doesn't owe you anything, then, and you're still coming, you must have some confidence in that. So he tries to explain in verse 9, his concept of Jesus' authority, he says that he has ability to say something wherever he is and it will get done somewhere else because he has servants that do what he says. And so he says, Jesus, you could do the same thing. You could just say something here and I know it would be done somewhere else. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. What else do we observe about the faith of uh, the centurion? He's not part of the church. Do you see that in the passage? He's not. Jesus had been in Israel for 30 years, and he had seen people with more or less or zero faith, but the centurion excelled them all. He had not found that kind of faith anywhere in the church. Now, with these thoughts in mind, turn to chapter 15. 
Matthew 15 is where we find the other lady, excuse me, the other person to whom Jesus says you have great faith. Let's look in verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same regions and cried to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Does she feel like she deserves something from Jesus? What is she asking for? Mercy. And do you see, is she coming to him in kind of a, uh, what's the word, the way you would come to someone on your level? Is she coming to him as a peer, or is she like the centurion beseeching him? She's earnest, isn't she? Just like that centurion. And is she asking for herself or for someone else? She says, my daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. So, so far, she has a lot in common with that centurion. She's earnest. She doesn't feel worthy. She's asking for someone else. Do you know she's not part of the church either? Do you notice that? And he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Did you know you can worship Jesus that way? I hear people talk about worship, about worship time and the worship service. I'd just like you to know that Jesus accepts this kind of worship. It's worship to come to him, come to him for help. Jesus accepts that as worship from you. Verse 26, but he answered and said, it is not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. I live in a part of Arkansas that is racially charged. I don't know anything about northern Idaho, but the racial diversity here is at a very low ebb. Mm -hmm. And uh, where I am in Arkansas, I have to be careful with what I say because something I say could be taken as a racial slur when I don't intend it that way at all. Does that make sense to any of you what I'm saying? Jesus lived at a place like I do, but it wasn't black and white. It was Jewish and Samaritan, Jewish and Canaanite. And Jesus has just said something that really could be taken wrong. Do you see that, that it could be taken wrong? I want you to wonder a little bit why Jesus would do that. And then I want to tell you what I think the reason is. Jesus knew the heart of the woman and her glorious virtue just wouldn't show up without an opportunity. So he said something that would give her a chance to glow in the dark. And look what she said. Yes, Lord, or true Lord, Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She did not feel worthy. 
verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. That's it. That is a complete survey of the New Testament examples of Jesus telling someone that they have great faith. That's all of them. And aren't they remarkably consistent with each other? Two people, both out of the church, never had been part of it, mind you. Two people, both earnest, both, both asking something for someone else, neither one of them feeling worthy, but both of them pushing through some level of prejudice just even to come to Jesus, who just wasn't, you know, it's not like the Jews loved Roman centurions. They pushed through a, this apparent, even imagined rejection, and you can just learn something about what great faith is like. It, it depends on the love and kindness of Jesus despite how it feels about itself. Great faith is like that. Did Jesus ever talk about the faith of the disciples? He did. Turn back one page to chapter 14. For me, it's on the same page here. Matthew chapter 14, and let's look at verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, Jesus is walking on the water, if it is you, bid me come to you on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter came down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of, what does Jesus say? Little faith, why did you doubt? Let's try some quiz questions based on this story. Does little faith believe in the power of Jesus? It does, because what did Jesus, and what did Peter do when he was sinking? Didn't he say, Lord, save me? Does little faith have an, enough connection to walk on water? That's a harder question, right? What you see is that the fact that you can walk on water is not proof positive that you have great faith. Do you see that in the story? But little faith looks like an up and down experience in this chapter. It looks like that it, is, it has confidence in the power of Jesus, but do you see it gets distracted from the presence and power of Jesus? It's not that Peter went through a period of infidelity. He went through a period of forgetfulness. Little faith wasn't a, a situation where he didn't believe in the power of Jesus. Little faith had a situation where he didn't think about the power of Jesus. That's the nature of weak faith. Listen, weak faith is enough to get help from the Lord but it sure is not a pleasant life. Weak faith is an up and down experience. And if we could cultivate the idea of the centurion to believe that even when we don't see Jesus, that he could just speak a word where he is and solve our problem, that he can see it and that he would give us even the crumbs from the table even if we are dogs, if we could just push through the feelings of rejection and problems the way the great faith people do, we would have a marvelous consistency to our spiritual life that would be so unlike Peter's slipping into the water. 
Turn forward two pages to chapter 16. Chapter 16, and we're looking at verse 6. 16, let's start in verse 5. And when his disciples came to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. So the context is that thousands of people were fed just the day before this. And did Jesus make exactly the right amount of food or did he make some extra? I mean, he made the right amount, but the right amount was enough to feed the people plus extra, right? That was the right amount. And so why don't they have bread with them on this day? What do they say? They forgot to take bread. And I hope that you will never blame the Lord Jesus for your spiritual troubles in life. I want you to understand something. When you don't have what you need today, it's not because of a lack of God's provision. It's because you forgot to take what you needed. Do you understand this? The bread has been provided. It's available. And if we don't have it, it just, the fault of that just can't be laid at the feet of Jesus. Verse 6, then Jesus said to them, Jesus has a way to change topics. And to him, the topic of bread was not even a significant topic, and he was ready to move to something significant. So watch how he does it. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You don't find it here in Matthew's version what that leaven is, but you do find it elsewhere. It's covetousness. And it's, excuse me, it's hypocrisy in, in Luke. Uh, Jesus says something about several ideas, and I confounded them in my head, but the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. Do you know that Jesus is one of the first people, at least as far as I can tell, one of the first people in history to use the word hypocrisy as a negative? Prior to Jesus, lots and lots of young people in the Roman Empire, if you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? They'd say, I want to be a hypocrite. They still say that today. The word hypocrite means actor. That's what it means. And Jesus was the one who put a negative spin on that. When he said to the Pharisees that you are hypocrites, what he was saying is that you are actors. The things you're doing are for show. The spiritual life that you're putting on is for the sake of getting attention. And it wasn't even as derogatory a sounding thing as what it sounds like today because when we think of hypocrites, we think of someone who's inconsistent. But really, the word didn't mean inconsistent when Jesus used it, although people who are hypocrites are, well, if you're acting, your life is going to have some inconsistency, right? There's going to be some there. I just want you to know that. The Pharisees were hypocritical. They were acting. Their religion was was for show. So Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now watch what happens next. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have taken no bread. They switched the topic right back to where Jesus was trying to take it from. They were talking about bread, or thinking about bread, I should say. Jesus changed the thought to a spiritual idea, and they just took it right back. And that might happen to you when you try to change topics too. Verse 8. Which when Jesus perceived, he said to them, O you of, what does it say? Little faith. Who's he speaking to? 
Why do you reason among yourselves because you've brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Neither the seven loaves, that's yesterday, and the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand? Listen, what I learn here is that when Jesus works a miracle in my life, he expects me to hold on to it in my mind. Um, I'll tell you about my mind, and you can think about your mind. I find my mind has a wicked bent when it comes to memory. And I don't like it. I mean that I've been leading call porters for 22 years now. And just this week, I had miraculous, powerful, miraculous answers to prayer. Incredible. But if I don't tell them to people or write them down, three weeks from now, I, it's almost as if they didn't happen to me. It's as easy for me to harbor an infidel sentiment as if I've never seen a miraculous answer to prayer. But you give me some quibble about inconsistency in the scripture, some infidel doubt, and I don't need to try to think about it or share it with anyone or tell anyone at all. That thing just latches on and holds on. And if it's going to be rooted out, it takes work. Does anyone have a mind at all like mine? No one even raised their hand, and so I just want to tell you, I think that the human race is like this, that unbelief comes natural to us. It's a weed that needs no cultivation, and faith is a tender plant that while it produces beautiful fruit, it's been cultivated to the point that it needs a lot of care to take care of itself. You know, if you cultivate a plant for many generations to make the very largest fruit, it's not going to be the most resistant to illness and the most resistant to weather. Does that make sense to anyone, what I'm saying? And I'm just trying to illustrate something, that faith is like this. It doesn't grow natural in our soil. So Jesus said to the disciples, why don't you keep these things in mind? If you had kept it in mind what happened yesterday and happened a few weeks ago or months, I really don't know how long ago the other one was, it would have made it easier for you to understand spiritual messages. It would have kept you from missing my point in this simple illustration. That's what little faith is like. Little faith believes that Jesus tells the truth. Little faith believes in the power of Jesus, but little faith is easily distracted by its own needs and problems. Little faith misses spiritual things because it's thinking about what's going on right around it. It's just the opposite of great faith. Great faith believes in the power of the word even when everything around it says no way. But little faith believes in the power of the word except for when it forgets about it because what's going on all around? Is it a simple, do you understand the simple contrast between these two ideas, little faith and great faith? That's how it is. Faith is something you do with the word of God. I don't even like the illustration that people use, and if someone here has used it, I'm not against you, I just don't like the illustration, but where they illustrate faith with a chair and say when you sit in a chair, you have faith in a chair. The reason I don't like the illustration is because it, in a way it confuses the concept of confidence with faith. They really aren't synonymous. Confidence can be an on-again, off-again, and a very theoretical thing. 
But faith is what you do with the confidence. Faith is pushing through apparent problems and feelings. That's what faith is like. It holds on. Let's come to something else practical. Has anyone here tonight wondered, why didn't Jesus choose six Canaanite women and six centurions? In other words, why did he choose people of little faith when there were, in fact, in the world, people of great faith? And I just want to tell you, I want to answer that question. I don't think I can really prove it to you. The disciples had a real advantage over the woman and the soldier. They knew a lot more. They had learned from their childhood things that the Canaanite woman hadn't even learned yet. Your responsibility to the God of heaven is not based on how great a faith you have. It's based on how much knowledge you've had access to. So that, for example, if one of you here tonight turn away from God and you go astray and you, and you live a worldly life, that worldly life does not remove from you one iota of responsibility. You owe it to the world to share with them the truth about the mark of the beast and the seal of God and the gospel, to tell them about the nature of the judgment. You owe that to the world and you can't get out of that by apostasy. The disciples had a debt to the world of knowledge And Jesus chose them as teachable men in whom he could cultivate faith so they could discharge that debt very effectively. Jesus loves to take you, weak faith people, and develop you into strong faith people. But he can't take, maybe right here in the northern woods, maybe there are half a dozen people within 100 miles of here that have a stronger faith than anyone in this room. Jesus just can't use them to give the three angels messages to their neighbors. They don't know them. I don't mean they don't know the neighbors. I mean they don't know the messages. This is why Paul said in Romans 9, he said, owe no man anything but to love one another. It's because you can't get out of that one. You can't come to the point that you, don't owe, that you don't owe love to those who need it. Paul said in, in the first chapter, he said, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise, so then as much as in me is, I will preach the gospel to you at Rome also. In other words, I owe it to you. I can illustrate this. I can. I think I will. No, that's not my wallet. That's the recording device. Um, If I had here a $10 bill and I gave it to one of you and said, would you give this to my wife? You know, if she pockets that for herself, it's theft, even though I, of my free will, put it in her hand. I say it's theft, even though I gave it to her, because when I gave it to her, I didn't give it to her for her. I gave it to her for someone else. Do you know what Jesus says in Jeremiah 23? He says, why are you stealing my words, everyone, from your neighbor? He says to false prophets that if you had at least taught my words to people, you would have turned them away from their wickedness. False prophets can turn people away from wickedness. Jeremiah 23 says so, if they use the word of God. The word of God is quick and powerful even in the mouth of a false prophet. 
and he faults them because they weren't even using it. But the idea is that we have a debt and we can't discharge that debt. Uh, we can't get out of the debt without discharging it. That's what I'm trying to say. We don't use the word discharge any longer. Let me find a different sentence for this. I can't get out of owing you truth any other way but by sharing truth with you. And what's true between me and you is true between you and your neighbors. When Ellen White was in Australia, there was a man there who had learned about the Sabbath. He'd been baptized. His wife was baptized. His elder daughters were baptized. And they attended church for a while in Australia, but the wife and the daughters they liked some of the theory becoming Adventists, but when they learned that Adventists don't dance and Adventists don't do some other things, they didn't like that part. They didn't like the part that affects how you live. And so, the, and the father, instead of being a strong man of the house, a priest, and kind of bringing the family together, he kind of got discouraged with the whole thing and went backwards with them. He stopped attending church and really just was a backslider, a thorough backslider. The whole family just wasn't part of the church anymore. You probably have some people like that around here. Ellen White visited him. And she didn't say what some of us would think a prophet might say. She didn't come and say, Mr. Smith, if you do not turn back to the truth, you will burn in the lake of fire. That's true, but it's not useful. She came to him with a stack of books, including the Great Controversy and Patriarchs and Prophets. She never tells us what the stack of books was, but you can tell what it is by reading the story there. And uh, she said, Brother, I don't know his name, I'm calling him Brother Smith. Brother Smith, I've come to make you a gift of books so you can share the truth with your neighbors. He said, um, we have a library from which we draw books. And she says that he looked at her like, don't you know I'm not even an Adventist anymore? But he didn't say it. And she writes, I knew it but I talked to him just as if he was still part of us. And she said, you have your own library, but perhaps you're uh, delicate about loaning out your personal books. So I'm come to give you a gift of these books because you need to share them with your neighbors. They don't know the truth for this time. And she gave him the books and she said, let's pray. And they prayed. And when they're done praying, there were tears in his eyes. And he said, I thank you for the books. When she came back to visit sometime later, she asked him which book he liked best. And he said, the hotel keeper down the road thinks the great controversy is the best. But I think Patriarchs and Prophets is the best. And then he began to cry while he was talking to her. And he said, because this is the one that pulled me out of the muck and the mire. I'm just trying to illustrate something for you, and that is that you have an obligation to your neighbors that is not based either on your faithfulness or your faith. It's based on your knowledge. And when we begin to do something to help people the way we ought to, here's a quote for you, Christian Service, page 115. This is slightly paraphrased. It says, 
Visit your neighbors in a kind and friendly way. Those who will not do this, who will manifest the indifference that some have shown, will soon lose their first love and grow critical, condemning, and censorious of their fellow brethren. A revelation to the North Woods explaining everything that's happened in the last 14 months. Let me say it to you again. Visit your neighbors in a kind, friendly way. Those who will not do this, who will manifest the indifference that some have shown, will soon lose their first love and grow critical, condemning, and censorious of their fellow brethren. Do you see any practicality to that for you and and your family, your life, your church? It was embarrassing for the disciples to have their faith contrasted sharply negatively with that of pagans. Maybe pagans is the wrong word, with people who weren't officially part of the church yet. And uh, so they came to Jesus with a request. Look at Luke chapter, I think it's 17. Luke chapter 17. There's a tithe envelope in this Bible. Uh, I left my Bible in the hotel room today and I borrowed this from an empty seat over on this side. And uh, if this belongs to you and you wonder where the Bible went, it's right here. Luke 17 and verse five. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Does that make good sense to you why they would say that? I mean, he's just said to them twice, you have weak faith. And the Lord teaches them two lessons in response to that. It's not like the way he heals a leper. He doesn't touch the disciples and say, have great faith. Instead, he gives them two ideas. Let's look at the first one. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the sycamine tree, be plucked up by the root and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I misunderstood that. I grew up in Alaska. Did I tell you I grew up in Alaska? I grew up in Alaska, and it, it, this feels a lot like Alaska, so it feels a lot like home to me here. And uh, I grew up in between two mountain ranges, the Alaska Range and the Brooks Range, So from my house, routinely you could see snow-covered peaks. Just you could see them where you have a very dry climate in central Alaska. You have a long visibility. And um, Jesus talks about uh, if you have little faith, you can move mountains. Anyone ever read that? I tried that as a boy. (laughs) And it didn't happen. Um... I misunderstood, and I tell you that not really to be funny. In fact, I don't ever do anything up front to be funny. And uh, I want you to understand what Jesus said. He never said that if you have faith like a mustard seed, I mean, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. He never said anything like that. He didn't say faith as small as a mustard seed. He said faith like a mustard seed. What is the characteristic of mustard seed? 
it starts as the smallest seed and it becomes the biggest bush. If it starts smallest and ends up biggest, its quality is neither the biggest or smallest. Its quality is that it is growest. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? It is the most growing. When the disciples said, increase our faith, Jesus said, you need faith that grows. You need a faith that you need to stretch and use. And yeah, that was the first lesson. If you have a growing faith, then you will have power. Look at verse 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say to him immediately, by and by is one of those phrases that has changed in 400 years. Today it means eventually, but 400 years ago it meant immediately. And this was translated 400 years ago, so it means immediately. Which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him immediately when he has come in from the field, go and sit down to eat. And will not rather say to him, make ready that I may eat and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward you shall eat and drink. Verse nine has bothered me at times. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I don't think so. That's, yeah, that's what tro means, think but it doesn't bother me anymore because uh, when I go to Taco Bell occasionally, I went to it when we landed at the airport on Tuesday, and I ordered the taco, the potato. I never can get burritos and tacos straight, but it's the 99-cent one. I ordered, I ordered it, and I asked for it without any cheese. And uh, when the lady brought me that potato thing, there was no great feeling of real gratitude. I did say thank you, but it, the, thank, the thank you didn't come from a spring of like she'd really done me a favor. It didn't feel like a favor because what, I'd, what had I already done? At Taco Bell, I'd already paid for it, Right? I had given her the money, and therefore she owed me the service. That's the best way to illustrate what Jesus is saying here. Many servants back then were servants because they were discharging a debt. You remember, you can read about that several times in the Bible, that, that they'd be sold into servanthood until they can pay the debt, this kind of idea. So here's a debt, and, when you, and the reason you're not so thankful is because you just owe the servant owes you, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. Look at verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Here are the two lessons. The first lesson Jesus gives is that faith needs to be a growing thing, something that you use and you stretch, and that's how it becomes strong. The second idea is that God doesn't owe me anything. Great faith can never come to God and say, I have tried so hard, please do such and such. Great faith can never come to God and say, I've lived as a vegan running 20 miles a week, please protect me from cancer or heal me from cancer. 
I don't mean there isn't a connection between lifestyle and cancer, but what I mean is that faith, great faith can never come to God and say, I've done something so you owe me. Why not? Because I already owe God my entire life. So what if I do everything that is right? What if I obey everything God gives me to do? How much does God owe me if I obey everything? Nothing. In fact, if I obey less than everything, I still owe. Right? So never can I be good enough or helpful enough or obedient enough so that God owes me anything. Jesus said if you want to have great faith, you have to give up the idea of creature merit, which is a strange way of talking. So in other words, give up the idea that God will ever owe you, that he always you're going to owe him. Let me review what I've taught you about faith tonight. I went overtime last night, and I'm sensitive about that, so I'm not going to do it again, but let me just take one peek here before I regret that I skipped something important. I didn't say anything tonight about being weary or worry or uh, worried, and I'm not going to. And... Um, we're just going to finish off these thoughts about faith and call that enough learning for one night. So we started out tonight with the idea of a definition for faith. Do you remember what that was? Faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we recognize right away in our talk tonight that faith isn't just an on or off switch that faith rather is like a plant that can grow and it can be weak and small or it can be strong and, and, and like that. And there are two people to whom Jesus said that their faith was stronger. That was the Canaanite woman and the centurion. And what did their faith have in common? Well, one thing was that they weren't even part of the church. Another thing was that they were earnest in their petition. And I hope that you'll be more earnest in your prayers tonight. Another thing was that they weren't really asking something for themselves. They were asking, their prayers were aimed at helping someone else. And more than that, they didn't come to Jesus as if he owed them anything, but they felt unworthy. The centurion said, I'm not worthy. And the Canaanite said, the dogs eat the crumbs. She accepted the comparison to a dog just like that. She asked for mercy. They both pushed through apparent well, the centurion, you can't see it, but he pushed through prejudice just to come to Jesus. But you sure can see it in the Canaanite woman, can't you? That Jesus talked in a way that would have made us discouraged, right? When the disciples don't like you and Jesus won't listen, many people leave the church over something no worse than that. But here's a woman who even when the disciples didn't like her, and when Jesus appears to have no heart at all, she just pushes through that because she knows something about his character. She depends on him to show a break. Desire of Ages, we learn that he lets something show to give her some encouragement, right? But she pushes through that apparent discouraging word. That's what great faith is like. It pushes through obstacles. It doesn't deserve, but it depends. 
It believes in the power of Jesus and his word, and it isn't thinking about anything around it other than the power of Jesus to do. What is little faith like? Little faith has learned the first lesson that God's word is true, that God can do everything, but little faith isn't very spiritual. When Jesus is talking, it listens, but when the waves are there, it sees the waves and forgets about Jesus. And when it's hungry, it can't even pay attention to a sermon. You remember that in Luke 16? That's what it was. They're thinking about bread and he was trying to teach them. That's little faith. It is so taken by the things around it that it just misses the encouragement that would come from thinking about the miracles and the blessing and the presence of Jesus. Little faith is a discouraging mixture of up and down experiences that just doesn't do any honor to the Lord. If we want our life to be an honor to him, then we want great faith. We need it because we have great responsibilities. We have great responsibilities not because we're such great people, it's because we know such great truth. And so we have responsibility. And so God wants our faith to match our responsibility and he offers to help us cultivate a greater faith. It's not gonna come at an instant like a healing, but it comes by living as if we owe God our entire life and he doesn't owe us anything back. Living as if he can speak a word and do what he wishes to do. Faith recognizes these things and lives that way and it brings with it the consistent fruit, that peace and joy and love. Tomorrow evening we're gonna talk about how to make faith endure. Tonight we're talking about how to have a faith that grows. Tomorrow night, how to have a faith that endures. And that would be the very best thing. Because he that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. Let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the beautiful truth of the Bible. I thank you that you found a way to bring us to so much truth. And I'm sorry that we exhibit so little faith. Would you please bless those here that will visit their neighbors? Find a way that they can discharge the debt of love that they owe. Restore to us that first love and take away from us that censurious spirit. We depend on you to help us cultivate the beautiful plant of faith. I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.